The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the reality just sung about in the chorus there that we cling to you, we need you, you are life. And then one particular line makes clear something even deeper than that, that we can't cling to you sufficiently, so you cling to us. Thank you. We need you, you are life, and you pursued us and saved us, and you hold us, and you keep us. Thank you. This morning, Lord, as we look at your word, and it talks about some of what that holding on to us, some of that clinging to you looks like. Will you help us to, to understand what's here and what, what's here for us? Open our eyes to your word, teach us, build us up, and mature us. Tighten your grip around us, Lord, and, and strengthen our hands that we can cling to you also. Thank you, Lord. We, we look to you now to be shepherd of us, your people. Thank you. Amen. Some things in life are worth fighting for, even worth dying for. Sometimes great high values or maybe the country that represents them. More often, though, particular people or groups of people, important relationships of love. We're willing to lay down our lives for them, literally or maybe metaphorically, Because sometimes great sacrifice is needed in order to protect something valuable. That's what's on the mind of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the need to fight for something, to contend for it, even though it's going to cost him. Not physical death in this case. He he has faced that kind of pain and torment and and the threat of death. He's faced that before in, in all kinds of situations, but in this case, it's a cost more, more one along the lines of, of great awkwardness and social embarrassment. It's a different kind of affliction, but one that he's willing to embrace because something very valuable needs to be protected and can't be otherwise. He has to fight for the church, to contend for the purity of the church and its devotion for its safety and for its life. And he's going to do that in a way that that will inevitably make him look foolish and even arrogant to some and will surely diminish him in the eyes of those who are going to take this out of context, his opponents who are going to deliberately take this out of context and broadcast it so as to humiliate him. That's going to happen. Paul knows his character is about to be assassinated and yet nonetheless he begins to step into this boasting of sorts to remind them to to reestablish among the Corinthian church what they need, that to be reminded of that he is the apostle. He's he's God's man in their midst. Paul is, not others. And that the message that he brought to them, the, the message, the gospel of God's grace in Christ, is the message, not others. It's what they need to be reminded of and reattached to if they are to remain faithful to the Lord in their purity and devotion, finding life and joy. 
At the end of chapter 10, Paul just barely began to make his case. And this morning, in the beginning of chapter 11, he's still warming to it as he pleads with the Corinthians to, to give him a hearing, to give him a, give him a listen. He's expressing three reasons in our passage this morning why they should do that. And, if, and really, in the original language, there are, there are three statements that begin with the word for, you know, because, because, because. Three, three reasons here. And as we look at them, we're going to notice they're, they're pretty personal. They're, they're pretty much about the situation between Paul and Corinth there. But we're going to kind of look at them. We'll see what they are. And as we look at them sort of sideways, what we find there are, are three pretty helpful aspects of the struggle for the church that all of us, even today, will find ourselves needing to be engaged in. Contention for the church, contention for the life of the church hasn't gone away and isn't just rare for somebody else. It's, it's something that's often present and needs to be kind of in our minds important and relevant for us. See, sometimes we think that Actually, if you were kind and loving and gracious and caring, you'd let people do what they want to do. You'd let the church be what it becomes. Actually, that's not the case. And anybody who's ever been a parent with a child knows that. You don't let your kids wander off into danger. You contend for them. Paul's going to contend for the church, and we need to have in our minds contending for the church that may happen. It may be relevant. It may be important for me, for us. And here's a couple of aspects of what that looks like and why. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the first part of it, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read it, and then I'll draw out three important observations from this passage. 2 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Verses 1 to 6. I'm going to make three observations this morning, and here's the first. They're all about protective contending. A contending, a fighting that is protective of the church. Protective contending for the church, first, comes from the love of godly jealousy. Protective contending for the church comes from the love of godly jealousy. In verse 1, Paul introduces another word that we're going to see here in, in much of the passages that follow, foolishness. A word related to the great awkwardness of this boasting we talked about last week. He, he's, he's going to step into something that is, that is just, in light of the fact that everything we are is because of the grace of God, boasting is just ridiculous. For anybody, for any Christian, let alone an apostle, 
But he has to do it, and so he's going to, and so very awkwardly says, please listen to me in this foolishness. Bear with me. I know some of you already think I'm a fool, and you're already just kind of humoring. Well, give me a few more minutes as I move towards foolish boasting. And literally verse 2 begins with the word for. Here's his first reason. You should listen to me because of why I'm doing this, where it comes from. It's not from a desire for power, not for manipulation or for personal defensiveness, but it's from love. I'm actually about to embarrass myself because I have a loving jealousy for you, like a divine, godly jealousy. It's a jealousy that arises from the fact that Paul sees himself as having betrothed the church to a husband. Now, betrothal back in that day was different than any kind of an engagement we have now. It's kind of like a combination of a, of a formal marriage engagement and the marriage itself. It's like a combination thing. It was formal, legal, binding, such as to get out of it, you actually had to get divorced. So it was almost like you were married, but not quite like you were married. It was a legal arrangement that lasted about a year, and during that time, the two were committed to one another, were responsible for one another, and the father of the bride in particular was legally responsible for his daughter in this contract that was struck, but not yet consummated. In this betrothal period, they all were awaiting the time when it would be consummated and the marriage would happen. That's betrothal. And that's exactly how Paul's depicting the church here, the bride of Christ, as we read about in Ephesians. We are, we are the bride of the bridegroom, Jesus. We stand here, or sit here today, in this betrothal period. We, we are in an arrangement. We are married, in a sense. But it's not yet consummated. We sit here in this period of waiting. We are awaiting the, the bridegroom to come and finish off, complete this promised arrangement, and to complete our joy and our love in that, the great wedding ceremony that we're all looking forward to. There's a time coming in heaven when we will sit down to the, what the Bible describes as the wedding feast of the Lamb. And what is betrothed will be completed and finished off. That's coming. And during that period of time in between, now, he remains faithful to us, will not abandon us, will not forsake us, will never leave. And we likewise are required to remain faithful to him, to not forsake him or turn away from him. That's true for the whole church for every congregation everywhere. And Paul, in particular in relation to this church in Corinth, because he founded that church, he's the one who brought them to the bridegroom. He stands, in his mind, he stands as the father, who's kind of the, the matchmaker between them, responsible for them. So he, he looks at the church there and, and says, I, I recognize where you are. You, you, are. you are brought to Christ. You are betrothed to him. I'm the one who did that. I brought you and I promised you to him as a pure virgin. And I'm, I'm responsible for that. I'm looking out for you. I long for you to, to come to this point of experiencing the marriage in which you will find your full joy. You will find love fulfilled. I want that so very, 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 very much for you. But I'm a little worried. 
because I see something going on. You're pledged to one guy, and you're hanging out with another guy a lot. And you text him all the time. And if I go through your, your Snapchat history, it's him and you and him and you and him and you and him and you. You're pledged to another guy, but you're hanging out with somebody else. And I'm worried that an old, old story is getting repeated here. And that is not an old, old story about love and devotion and faithfulness and purity and glory and joy. It's an old, old story about deceit and cunning and death come from the hand of the devil. I'm worried. And so I'm about to make a fool of myself for you. Because I'm so worried for you. I'm worried for you, for your faithfulness, yes. But not because of how it looks. I'm worried for you, for your faithfulness, because in your faithfulness will be found your life and your joy. And your, I'm, I'm worried that you're about to throw that away. And you may think, you may think I'm being pushy and stubborn and old-fashioned and possessive. I'm, I'm going to step in and interject myself here and kind of force an issue. And you want me to stand back and leave you alone to make your own decisions and your wisdom. You may not like this. But I'm telling you, daughter, this is coming from somewhere. Not from my pride, but from my love. I'm concerned for you. I have a jealousy for you that is really good. Is that odd for you to think about jealousy being really good? Oftentimes it isn't, but it sure can be. Should not a husband and a wife, should not a parent and a child have a bit of loving jealousy that they, they want to be first in the affection of the beloved other? Can you imagine what kind of a husband would say, I'm totally cool with my wife loving the neighbor more than me. That's okay. What's wrong with you, you would say? You should be jealous if you're being supplanted by the next guy over. That's wrong. That's not right. You should be jealous about that for, for good reasons. Well, the Lord, Christ, our bridegroom, can you ever imagine? Can you ever imagine him saying, I really don't care if my people love the world and follow and serve Satan. I'm good with that. That's okay. No. He's jealous for our affections. That's a really good thing. It comes from love. He's passionately committed to having us for himself. Passionately committed to having himself be first in our affections. To have us for himself pure, not mixed. You know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday were his, and Tuesday, Thursday, maybe, you know, maybe. No. Every day, always. Us for himself, faithful, not fickle, wandering back and forth, devoted, not unsure. That's God in his divinely jealous heart wanting us for himself completely, only, and totally. 
to keep us for himself, to unite us to himself. That, uh, it, of course, of course, it is, it is protecting of, it is establishing of, it is lifting up of his own honor that he's not made a fool of. But do you see, Christian, please see that in that passionate desire, in that, in that jealous, that earnestness, that, that wanting of us, Yes, it's about God and God's glory. And our love. And, and, and us. Who are you made for? It's easy to think about betrothed and, and committed and think about promise and I should and I shouldn't break a promise and I should. Who are you made for? Set aside ought come fully into beauty and glory and love and joy. Who are you made for? Who saved you? Who sought you? Who contended for you in the first place? You were lost and doomed and God stepped into the world, took on flesh to contend for you, to grab you, to save you, to win you to himself. All for the glory of God and all for the love of you. And so he's still chasing us down and contending for us. His, his selfishness is beautiful for us. His jealous passion is glory for us. His, his demand of being the only is our love, our life, and our joy. That's a great and good thing that God contends for the church with a divine jealousy and then sends other people like Paul to do likewise, to actually carry it out in the here and now. Paul, on a mission from God, carrying a similar divine jealousy of God, is coming to fight for the church. He wants you for himself. Come back. I'm not going to let you go. That's a good thing, and we should recognize it as that and want it for ourselves and for others. So this, this is a spot where we, we're looking at this sideways and we kind of like turn a little bit and we say, okay, that's, that's Paul and that's a particular congregation. Okay, so I want that, and i got to turn a little bit because I'm not Paul and you're not Corinth. But we all might be Paul and we all might be Corinth. It may be that any one of us finds ourselves in a spot where I, I need to contend for a spouse, a child, a friend, to be involved in contending for a church even. And that's actually a loving thing to do, a good and right thing to do. Or it may be that someone comes to us and begins to contend and poke into our business and get personal with stuff that I, don't, I didn't actually ask you to ask about. Thank you. Would you perhaps for a moment see that as loving nosiness, gracious intrusion, God perhaps sending someone to contend for you, for your good. 
This kind of atmosphere in a church, we talk about church discipline. In every membership class, we talk about church discipline, and we always talk about it as, as a pyramid. At the very, very, very top, the pinnacle of that pyramid is excommunication from the church. But that's obviously, period, that's rare. Most of the pyramid, most of church discipline is far below that and is the kind of thing I'm talking about right now where somebody gets a little bit nosy with another person for their good and contends and brings up, hey, can you help me understand that right there? Hey, who asked you? Well, I'm, I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to approach you to help you in love remain faithful and not be cunningly deceived. To contend for the church properly in, in a protective way, we must understand, comes from the Lord's heart first as he sends other people with his heart, and that is loving, divine jealousy. He wants us for himself, for our good, for his glory, yes, and for our good. A spirit that drives proper protective contention, loving jealousy. But that whole contention is sometimes made necessary because of what we see in the second point. At verse 4, see the word because or for again introducing an example of what this cunning leading astray would look like. And also the second reason the church should listen to Paul. Because, for, if you, if you look at the end of the verse, you put up with everything else. He uses the same word. Bear with me, in verse 1, and the end of verse 4, you bear with everything else. You should at least listen to me. Interesting way of putting things. And obviously, kind of one that has a little bit of a poke at Corinth, and it's kind of an insult. But the comment, as we read it and kind of look at it a little bit sideways, we see in it a problem that drives the need to contend for the church. Our second observation, protective contending comes because of the tendency for wrong-headed tolerance. It comes because of the tendency for wrong-headed tolerance. He writes, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, different from the one I proclaimed, or if you receive, that is, you are offered and you take in a different spirit from the one you received, and by spirit there, I think he means character attitude, which does come from the Spirit of God, so that he certainly has the Spirit of God in mind, but I think he means a character or if you receive a different gospel from the one I preached and you received, well, you're good with that. You allow it. You make room for it. Now notice this. this. This is particularly relevant for our day and our age and even our particular location. As we encounter and evaluate the, all the different religions around us, and including the very different religion that's dominant in the culture all around us. We have to do that. Not so as to be hateful towards others or mean. 
By no means. You get checked it at the door. And to be clear, we're, we're talking about, you know, very carefully we talk about the difference between what's in here and what's out there. What, what's out there we are not, we're not being mean about, we're not being critical about. We, we believe in the right for other people to believe other things, which is not to say they're right. It's to say we believe in the right for people to be wrong. That's the old definition of tolerance. Believing in the right for somebody else to be wrong. The new definition of tolerance says there is no wrong. Except the statement that something's wrong. Which is obviously logically ridiculous. But we're going to carefully not get lost in the philosophy of that. We're going to try to follow where this goes, I, th I think, in Paul's thinking here. But I'm trying to be careful about some things here. We have to think. And we have to think about what's out there around us. Not in a judgmental and, and mean-spirited sense, but in a clear-headed sense. And in an honest sense. So we look at this closely and notice, boy, there are some interesting similarities here. The false teachers that Paul dealt with, they did indeed speak the name, J-E-S-U-S. -S. And if we look at the very next phrase, Paul calls them sarcastically super apostles. They almost surely claim to be apostles of Christ, of a similar sort, but better than Paul. And we saw back in chapter 10, verse Seven, they described themselves as being Christ's man, Christ's sent ones in, in their midst. And we saw earlier in chapters 2 and 3, they championed the, Mo, the law of Moses and, and they thought themselves big fans of Moses. They held up God's word. They offer, as we see here, something that they call a gospel and so on. They used much of the same vocabulary talked about many of the same people and figures and history and systems and even dealt with some of the same scriptures. The point is that if you look at these guys that Paul's talking about and dealing with there in Corinth, they did not offer up some completely radically different belief system that had no touch point whatsoever with what Paul was talking about. On the contrary, there were numerous surface-level similarities. The great differences were not seen until you looked at the details. But if you looked at the details, you would readily see the differences. One calls Jesus a great teacher and leader whose mission is to help people obey God. But Paul says otherwise. Jesus is the second person of the one triune God, eternally existing, who came to earth taking on flesh, whose mission was to become the only sufficient sacrifice for sin. The other teachers say that salvation is, is available by following the law of Moses, by keeping God's commands, by becoming obedient and, and, and showing oneself worthy of his approval. 
But Paul's gospel says we can't ever do that. Not a chance. And that our only hope, that the reason it's called good news, gospel, is that it's news that's good about what God did in sending Jesus to go to the cross to pay for sin. By trusting him, we can be forgiven. That's the only way. It's very different. It's totally different in the details. Similar words, totally different in the details. And the Corinthian church said, Never mind the differences. We'll take you both. We'll tolerate it all. Who are we to say what's true for you? I mean, it seems awfully judgmental to call something wrong. And to say that these, these guys are pretty nice. They're decent people. To say that these nice and, and decent guys here are in error and therefore are still lost in their sin and facing the wrath of God... I don't want to say that. Of course it's different, yes, but that's okay. Very carefully, again, I need to say, they, Paul here, we here today, are not talking about what somebody out there believes. The problem is what's going on inside. Something has come in. The church is tolerating error within, not because it has been confused or tricked, but because it seems to have imbibed something of an attitude of, we'll allow both, we'll tolerate Paul and the others together. The church is being threatened and pulled away And that's why Paul has to step up to the plate and contend for them. And the reason they're being pulled away, threatened, and that their very lives are in danger is their own fault. They opened the gate and let in air and have not kicked it out. So God in love has to send Paul, but it never should have gotten to that point. Timothy and Titus are clear. The role of elders in the church is to keep it from ever getting to that point. And evidently, those guys in Corinth who were in that position did not carry out their jobs. Titus 1 is abundantly clear. The enemy is never supposed to get in because the elders of the church are supposed to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Not platform them. Rebuke them and send them out. That's the role of of a church. And Paul is having to fight for them because they didn't carry out their own responsibility to fight for themselves. This is a word for us today. It's, It's a warning to us. And again, we're looking at this kind of sideways. So this is not exactly Paul saying that we today, this church right now, has this exact same problem. It's, it's, it's not quite that direct, right? We've got to look at it from the side and say, I see an, a concern there, a warning, an alert. We live in a world that, we all know this, we live in a world that out there, just outside of the doors, there, there is a massive, massive thrust towards tolerance, defined in the new way. 
We bump into that everywhere. We, we know that. And again, there is something appropriate about, I, I can let you believe what you believe. I, I, I have, I'm, not, I'm going to reserve the right to say whether that's right or wrong, but, I, but you can believe what you believe. But in here, that is not how it works. We, we do not have the same standard in here. We, we have a word given and a responsibility given to uphold that word and to be just as pugnacious as we need to be to accomplish the end goal of upholding pure doctrine. I think it's wise as we talk about upholding pure doctrine, we think about, I've described this other times, think about concentric circles because Pure doctrine is not absolutely everything any Christian could possibly believe. But if you move through the idea of concentric circles, when you come to a middle circle that if not believed, you are not a Christian. Incidentally, the kind of things Paul mentions here, who is Jesus and what is the gospel? At this inner circle, if you do not believe this, you are not a Christian. We must be tenacious on that and careful. We move a little bit out from the circle, then, then we can be a little more flexible and have a little more discussion. And out here somewhere, we're just at the I think realm. Eh, What's in what circle? I don't know. But right here in the middle is if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. And the church is responsible to guard the gate and make sure that is not tolerated. Protective contending sometimes comes about because of the tendency towards foolish tolerance. Guard the flock is particularly a command given to the leaders, but of course the flock picks the leaders. So it's a command given to all of us. And it will be helpful if we're talking about knowing what is true doctrine and and knowing how to guard if we actually know something of the truth, which takes us to the third point. Third observation, protective contending stands on the knowledge of God, not appearance or presentation. Protective contending stands on the knowledge of God, not appearance or presentation. Verse 5, Paul gives his third reason, and again, in the original language, it does have a four in it. Four, I don't think I'm in the least bit inferior to these so-called super apostles. The point being, if you listen to them, you should listen to me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the JV. I'm the varsity team also. Now, he's going to say something similar in chapter 12, which is, is again, kind of a remarkably kind of low-key way of putting things here. These opponents claim they are superior to Paul, and Paul just says, I don't think so. I'm not inferior to them. Now, as, as he lays out why not, what we're seeing here, I think, is a criteria for how we should be judging the people who want to be leading us. These guys want to steer the church in one direction. Paul wants to steer it in another. And he's saying, here's how you should be evaluating who you follow. We're both trying to exert some influence. What are you looking for as you evaluate us? I'm not inferior to them. Well, I am in one way. 
I'm unskilled in speaking. We've seen this before. Paul acknowledges that he was not very skilled in, trained in, or good at the very commonly respected and admired rhetorical skills of the day. It was a big deal for them. Rhetoric. Oratory. And if you were good at that, you could draw a crowd and make a lot of money. And these guys were good at it, and Paul was not. And he acknowledges, that's not me. They draw crowds. They, they, they are influential. They, they appear awesome and powerful and brilliant, and that's not me. But I'm not inferior to them. Why not? Because I'm not inferior. I'm, I'm not failing, diminished, backwards in knowledge. I am not so in knowledge, he says, verse 6 meaning the knowledge of God, which is far more important. He excels in the knowledge of God in every way, in all things he has made it plain to them. You see how he doubles it up? In every way we have made this plain to you in all things. They know it and they can't deny it. I mean, think about Paul's history with them. He's had, he's had a, between a five and seven year history with them. He planted the church by teaching them who God is and who they are and what God was doing in grace and in mercy to save them through Christ on the cross. He lays out the history, moving through the Old Testament up to the current story of, of Jesus and what's going on. Where Jesus is now, ascended into heaven, where he's seated and awaiting his return, the consummation of, of all of God's hist- work in all of redemptive history. The only reason that they know any of this and the only reason that they know God is that Paul knows this and Paul knows God and told them. That is plain obvious to them. And he knows that they know that he knows all of this. It's plain. If you want to talk about knowledge, knowledge of God, Paul is the man. So what's the problem? Notice, it is not, the problem is not, he has to argue, you know, actually I know a few things too. It's like, I've made that plain to you in every way conceivable, and you know it, and I know you know it. So what's the problem? Same problem we have. The part of our sin nature that has the propensity to love shiny things. We are easily and consistently impressed by things that look impressive to us, to others, by bling, as is constantly shaped and defined by the culture around us. So we start to think that shiny things are more important than substance. That appearance is more important than truth. The presentation is more important than knowledge. How you lay it out there is more important than what you're laying out there. We know otherwise, but the point is the the Corinthians did too. It was plain to them in every way, and he still had to argue this point. He's still saying, you are still persuaded by the shiny thing, by these guys' presentation, as they peddle to you something that is wrong and is leading you away from the true Jesus. You are being sold an air that somehow is still attractive to you. 
Watch out. We have that danger today too. It probably looks a little different for us today because the, the types of communication, types of appearance are not strictly about just a, a monologue speaking type of wow. The types of communication, the types of appearance and presentation things that sell us though today are things related to media. You can sell anything today if you've got a TikTok account, an Instagram account, and can communicate it in, was it 130-some characters or less? If you've, if you've looked at how messages are propagated today, it is not primarily with a guy standing on a stage talking by himself for 45 minutes. It's snippets that look gosh darn cool. Never mind what they're actually saying. They just look gosh darn cool. And it gets forwarded and liked and liked and forwarded and bought. We, we, that's water we swim in. We're susceptible to that. And I'm 49 years old. We, my generation, we are susceptible to that. A couple generations down, way more so. That's what we have to be looking at and, and thinking about what, and developing a nose for. Where is the surface and the shallow emotional appeal actually the thing going on here more than the substance, more than the content? To develop a nose for that, to beware of our our tendency for our hearts to be pulled along. I, I say this, and everybody can understand it. Be on guard against it. Develop a, a, a healthy suspicion. Am I being sold something by form more than by argument, more than by substance? God often chooses to package his best goods in simple forms almost on purpose. He has said this before. If you think back to 1 Corinthians, he said it to them before. If you think of 1 Corinthians 1, God's ways and God's gospel and God's Savior even all have, have a common and deliberate design in them, which is really interesting if you think about this. Paul writes back then to the Corinthian church, God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world, chose on purpose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame those who think themselves wise and who resist trusting him. And God chose what is weak in the world's eyes to shame those who will only pay attention to what is strong and mighty and influential what draws a crowd and looks impressive and promises victory and success and glory. That's all the wrong criteria, and it's almost as if God deliberately goes against that so as to force you to choose contrary to the world's criteria and look at something else. What's the truth here? Not the presentation and the form and the appearance. What's the, what's the truth here? 
Jesus himself was not a man likely to be highly regarded, just looking at him. He was never much of a, of a worldly person. He didn't have much and didn't look like he did, and his message at first blush was one of embarrassing loss and shameful death. He was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected. And his appearance had nothing in it. He would not have worn the cool clothes. He did not have cool glasses. He was just a guy. In the end, hung naked on a cross and killed. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians, and the thing we have to be alert to as we are so oftenly wooed by, the, by the, the forms, the shapes of our modern world, is that that humiliating, simple, unattractive package is where God hid the knowledge that gives life. He hid it right in plain sight. But he hid it. He hid in Jesus the wisdom and the power of God to save. And to know that truth, to know that knowledge is to find the life of everlasting full joy. That's what God wants for his people. And we should want it too. And be willing to look for it and watch for it and be careful with ourselves and with one another as we all together develop a habit of contending for one another's joy. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. It sounds hard, but it's for good. To contend for the church is to fight for something that's worth fighting for. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.